0: Hello and welcome back to General Chat. I've got a very exciting guest for you this week. You might know this week's guest from the acclaimed Uncaged Anthology, or from her D&D module for feline bards and other folks too, The College of Catawalling, or perhaps from her very own game Necomancy. I'm talking, of course, about Jessica Markram. We talk a bit about the challenges that come with creating a game her love of Wonder Woman, and how the TTRPG community is changing for the better. This interview is packed full of insights, so let's get on into it. Here we go! All right, Jessica, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I know of you mainly from the Uncaged Anthology, which has its second edition just coming out uh, recently that everybody can go check out. I'll link down below. Uh, But you were in the first one, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yep. I have uh, a family reunion, which is a Tier 2 adventure in Volume 1. And then I also have an upcoming adventure
0: in Volume 4 as well. Ooh, so I know you probably can't tell us much about what's coming up in Volume 4, but can you tell us a little bit about what inspired your story for Volume 1?
1: Sure. Um, I sort of pitched it as Pokemon beats French mythology, but... <laughs> but um, I've always loved the myth of Melusine, which is one of the few myths I remember reading as a kid where the woman doesn't die or get married at the end. She basically gets angry at her husband because he lied to her and leaves. She flies out of the castle and just basically takes all of her stuff and goes home. (laughs) And the tragedy in it is that all of her children die afterwards because they're seen as monsters because she's a monster. Uh, and so I wanted to create an adventure where, like Pokemon, where you have to catch them all, it's a monster hunting adventure where you actually can't kill any of the monsters because you're basically catching or meeting Melusine's children and bringing them home to her. So it's called a family reunion because you're hired by Melusine, in this case you're hired by who might be seen as the big bat or the big monster in other adventures, to bring your family home.
0: That's a really fun twist on the monster hunting Uh, aspect that can be found in some adventure games. It's like you're going in thinking that you're going to be like hunting down these things, but you're actually bringing them back. You're going in and doing like a child rescue, and I think that's a really fun way to look at it.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's been pretty fun because they're all different. They're all different in the myth, too. It describes one of them as having horns and tusks, uh, and another one as being massive, and then One is a great politician, one is a great warrior, one is like a renowned beauty despite having a hideous deformity of some sort. So I got to have some fun making them all not exactly who you would expect considering their mom is a giant snake.
0: One of the things that I think that is really fun about the uncaged anthology, and I think it's great that, you know, so far I think You guys are up to four, if I believe. Like I think that's where you're capping it with all the submissions, which is just incredible, because they're all wonderful. But I think one of the great things about it is that uh, myths are so relatable. I think everyone really can find a bit of themselves to see within mythos. What do you think it is that drives folks to to be drawn to folklore and myths and fairy tales in these ways?
1: I think part of what it is, is with myths is that they cross-cultural boundaries. Like each culture obviously has their own myths and there are some that are very distinct. There are a few monsters in Uncaged that I didn't know about. There's one from Filipino lore who I had not heard of before, and I got to play in that one in Uncaged Live, and it was pretty scary. Uh, It's an exciting one. But when you get to the basics of it, like you'll see so many different cultures have a myth of a beautiful aquatic woman who sings and lures men to their death basically, and it gets into people's fear of the ocean, but also the intense draw of the ocean. And we have creation myths, we have harvest myths. I think it comes from everyone's wanting to understand and also connecting to something else. And it's something that brings us all together. I don't know if I'm totally making sense there,
0: but... <laughs> You're So you are absolutely making sense. I do think that there is that sense of togetherness, something where, especially with like a fear of the ocean, you think so many people have a fear of the ocean. Like, I think it's probably one of the most common fears up there with a fear of the dark. And I think it's our nature as human beings to want to put a sort of conquerable name and face to those kind of fears.
1: Right. And just like that, you'll see in more than one type of mythology, a snake woman or something. And that's because in multiple mythologies or countries like what's scary, possibly female sexuality and snakes. Like There's an innate human fear of snakes. You'll see primates who are afraid of snakes, just like we're afraid of spiders. And so you'll see some, like there's somewhere there's Anansi the trickster, but a lot of times spiders are just no good and they're scary.
0: I think that with you bringing up uh, Anansi the trickster, which is one of uh, a fantastic feature in folklore, I think that something that really draws me to the Uncaged Anthology is my love for, Neil Gaiman, who, you know, wrote American Gods. They have the book Anasai Boys. Like, just f- fantastic writing about these mythological creatures and stories and lore. And I think, you know, that's definitely something for me that was a moment of, oh, all these different things exist. And the idea that they exist because of a a commonality that we all share, I think was a really interesting uh, thought for me to have and I think it's also interesting that you know we keep talking about commonality things that are shared I think that folklore being used in D&D when d d is such a, a lore heavy game I think those things just go hand in hand like it's just almost like the perfect marriage of just a beautiful lore heavy uh, anthology
1: oh thank you Yeah, I was really excited uh, to be able to bring in other myths and lore Um, and I was glad that other people were doing that too because there is so much specific D&D lore and as someone who D&D isn't my primary game, if this had just been uh, a pitch for feminist takes on D&D monsters specifically. I might have been too nervous to apply, but uh, because Ashley Warren pitched it as feminist takes on mythological creatures or D&D monsters or basically however you want to do this, just put it in the Fiden format. Uh, that really inspired me and gave me the confidence to do it. Because I love mythology. I've loved it since I was a kid, and that kind of transferred into my love of fantasy.
0: It's really wonderful to see some of these different stories be told. You know, it's it's kind of silly to restrict ourselves to uh, just specifically classic D&D lore or one specific type of storytelling because there's such a range of stories to be told and in a fantasy setting where you can literally do anything it's kind of silly to just be like oh I'm only going to tell this one narrative this one story and it's only going to go this specific way. Um, It's so wonderful to see these things be reflected now with a more diverse cast of stories and characters and things that can happen. Uh, What is it about the fantasy genre that appeals to you? Ooh, there's so much. Um, Well, the
1: possibilities I love. Um, I think in, well, there's also that in sci-fi. But in fantasy, I mean, you can always rely on a wizard to it, basically, if you really want something to happen. But <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, anything is possible. Whatever you imagine can be true. Um, I love the costumes or the clothing. I just, I love the hair. I love the beautiful creatures. And as silly as some of the tropes are, I I love them. I love the idea of going to a tavern with a bunch of adventurers and seeing a rowdy diverse crew in there. And maybe hearing from, you know, your next, um, I almost said mark which kind of tells you what kind of character I play. <laughs> but, you know, seeing where the next point of adventure is going to be or something like that. Like, I just basically, I love the possibilities. I love the look. I love the beasties. I, I really love it all.
0: You mentioned that D&D was not your first game or your preferred game method. What, what was that first game that really grabbed you. You know the one that you like were up all night playing or that you obsessively read through the game guide to figure out how to beat. What was that first game for you?
1: Mouse Guard.
0: Mouse Guard, please tell me some more about that.
1: Uh it's from the Burning Wheel. It's not Burning Wheel, but it uses a lighter version of the Burning Wheel system. And if you've ever read Redwall or any of those books. It's very similar to that. It's based on the Mouse Guard comics. Or I guess they're, they're not really graphic novels. They're, they're comics. Uh, about a trusty guard team of mice that live in a guard tower. And they patrol an area and keep them safe for mouse kind. And protect them from... Outside threats, which might be owls, their arch enemies are weasels because of the great mouse weasel war of long ago. And you play as a team of mice, and it was the first game that I ever GM'd. And realizing that, you know, threats didn't just have to be NPCs, but threats could be weather or rough. Rain because when you're a mouse, there's a lot that's out to get you in the world. Just kind of blew my mind open, and I had so much fun coming up with scenarios for that.
0: Yeah, that does add a really fun element, because when you're so tiny, you can uh, wear a thimble as a helmet. I imagine uh, big, wet raindrops are a bit of a hazard.
1: Yes, that's one of the major things that can happen to you, is you can get swept away by a mild storm so weather change can be it doesn't have to be a blizzard it can you know be a light rain can be pretty traumatic
0: oh that's fantastic that reminds me so much of the Redwall series which is a, a book series that i loved as a kid just because of the the what i would describe as warm fantasy like cozy fantasy you know where you just feel like uh, you exist in like a warm cottage fireplace is on, you know, you've got scones in the oven. It just feels very cozy and safe. And I yes. love that kind of fantasy.
1: I love Redwall so much. And that was why Mouse Card uh, appealed to me. That's a big part of why Humblewood for 5e is appealing to me. Oh, yes. Uh, I've just been trying to kind of recapture Redwall in my adult life.
0: I mean yeah I I feel like if you've run into Redwall and you loved it quite uh the way that I loved it I mean I was obsessed I read all the books as a kid and just like is there's something about a feeling like feeling small and feeling like a thing that's that's bigger than yourself and feeling like you know you still have your place even though you're small and vulnerable. I think there's something that like as a woman, I kind of relate to, not that, you know, women are inherently small or vulnerable, but that's certainly, I think how we are, uh, can Mm -hmm. be made to feel in today's society. And so feeling a bit like you still have your place, you still can overcome these great odds, I think was something that I really resonated with.
1: Yeah, I can totally get that. Um, That's one of the things that I've, really loved um, about Uncaged and I try and integrate I guess into everything that I write is uh, I guess flipping typical uh, tropes that are placed on women uh, adding a feminist twist I think is what it says on my website I'm not sure Uh, but because we have so often been made to feel small. And giving female players or femme identifying players uh the room to take up space, I think is really important.
0: Absolutely. That's one of the things that I really have enjoyed about the anthology. That's why I'm looking forward to there being two more editions. Is it's just you're taking some of those things that especially with mythos, you know, and I know that's kind of the purpose and the messaging, but I don't think it can be restated enough how wonderful it is that you're taking these myths that are usually very negative about the, the characters, you know, Medusa a very negative story about her and taking that and putting it on its head and making you consider things from a different perspective. I think it's uh, much needed and very enjoyable.
1: Thank you. Yeah, some of them, and I I love you wizards, but some of the female-identified monsters in the Monster Manual have such rough backstories. Like, if you look at the Banshee or the Harpy,
0: mm-hmm. they... Mm-hmm, it's hard, it's hard I'm tired of seeing trauma as like a a catalyst for a strong female character, you know
1: yeah, the harpy doesn't even have a name it just describes how she was, you know in love and is cursed to doing I I didn't write about the harpy but it's distressing the banshee is what she is because she was obsessed with beauty and It's so toxic. It's angry making. (laughs) So to have the ability to take those and go, you know what? Let's kind of flip that. Like maybe there's more to it than that. Maybe this harpy has a name or maybe there's more to this beauty thing. Maybe she was into more than beauty. Maybe this guy who wrote her story has it totally wrong and it's not beauty at all. And that was a weird assumption of
0: you to make, bro. <laughs> I think I think that we're actually seeing that a lot more lately, which is really nice because I think that for a long time, Nerdy Spaces and especially DD felt very much like a boys' club. Very, very much. And oh, yeah. it's nice to see that not only I think Wizards themselves are trying to be more inclusive and trying to kind of turn that around. But when you look at some of like the original modules and you look at some of like the older lore and some of the, the stuff that came out uh, in the eighties, it's a bit, it's a bit much. It's a bit uh, not super friendly to women or anyone that's not like a straight white man. It it was a little weird to me because there were
1: female writers on D anD (laughs) D back then. Yeah, there were, but I
0: think you know, the uh, the culture was a bit different. How do you? For sure. Yes. How do you think the culture and the community is changing now to be more inclusive?
1: Oh, so I can give you an example. Um, I didn't get to play my first game of D anD D because I was a girl. Oh when I (laughs) and now I write D and D. So that's an example for me (laughs) of how um I guess I forced my way into it and you know, because well, because Ashley opened it up and for me basically like welcomed me in. That's an example of inclusivity there. But yeah, back in the three point five days when I was midway through character I was told by the DM that, you know, he didn't allow girls at the table, so I left, and that from, I talked to other women my age, and that's not everyone's story, but a lot of women do have that story, and seeing now how many fems. And women are playing, how many people of color are involved and strong voices in the community. How many non-binary people are involved and strong voices in the community is really exciting. And they're creating games. They're not just creating like D&D games, but independent games powered by the Apocalypse games, brand new forms of games, the games, diceless games, all sorts of things that stretch the idea of what a tabletop RPG can be. And I think it's so cool because by bringing in all these voices, the hobby itself expands.
0: Of course there's only room to grow when you bring in other folks perspectives there's only new stories to be explored and new perspectives to be seen from it's it's kind of boring to just have like one story and one perspective when it's like you could have this entire spectrum of experiences to go out and play through and i find that prospect very exciting
1: yes i never even considered the idea of you know a gm less game or a diceless game, and now I've written one that's both. But it's something I never would have thought of had I not been awakened to the possibility because of other voices and the, you know, sword dream and no dice, no masters movement and taking colonialism out of games. Mm. And I think it's very cool what's happening right now in terms of inclusivity and representation in the gaming world.
0: So you're talking about Necomancy, your game that you made where you have an option for playing without a game master. It's not dice-based because it's based on the tarot deck. How did you come up with the idea for Necomancy?
1: I was uh, writing for the Dream Jam, which is affiliated with Sword Dreams. There's nine principles of Sword Dream. I don't have them all off the top of my head. You can look them up. But it basically involves making your game inclusive and anti-colonialist, anti-colonialist, and uh, changing what a tabletop game means, right? So instead of going in and killing the monsters, you might be saving the monsters from people who are coming to colonize the monster's land. Or, um, so instead of fighting, you might be defending, or something like that. Or have a combat-free game. And, I love cats. I've written, for DM's Guild, the Bardic College of caterwauling which is a bard class for Taboxi, uh, basically based on how much my cats yell. <laughs> and, um, I It sort of ties into what we talked about before with Mouse Guard, like that feeling of coziness and Redwall feeling safe. And I had this idea of cats at a wizarding school um, where all cats have magic. Everybody knows that cats are magical. But what if cats lived in a world without humans? And, um, they got to really hone their magic. And they, um, so these cats, the necromancers, live in a tower and they can go out and use their magic as they will, uh, generally for good, I hope. And, um, I was really intrigued by the idea of no dice, no masters. And I love tarot. I'm actually working on... I'm the producer for an Uncaged spinoff project that's actually a tarot deck featuring all of our, or most of the monsters of Uncaged with a lot of our Uncaged artists and thought it would be fun to use tarot cards because they bring up so many emotions for so many people. They're so evocative and realized that, um, you really could just tell a story or create a character based on the major arcana. And then it sort of created itself. I workshopped it a bit with some of the other uncaged folk. And I came up with the idea of using the minor arcana as not really spell slots, but how you um, use your magic is with the minor arcana, and they're all representative of a type of magic. And hopefully that works for people. You get to be a cat and use your tarot deck. And because tarot is expensive for a lot of people, I put in an option for using just a regular poker deck as well. (laughs)
0: It does seem, when I was looking at the game and all the different parts of it, it does seem very adaptable. It seems like there's an easy point of entry, like it's very accessible, which is something that I think games should be. They should be accessible to everyone.
1: I agree, and I think a big issue with a lot of games uh, for new audiences is fear of the crunch. I know some people think that they're not good enough to play games. Either they're afraid of the map, or the whole character creation thing makes them uncomfortable. So I wanted something where it was pretty easy just to say, you know, draw a card. Now tell me your story based on this card. You know, there's no stats, no nothing. this, This is you, and make your decisions based on what this means to you. And then go. And then you kind of tell a story together. And then there's an option to do it like with or without a GM, however you prefer, and however many people you have to play with.
0: Cooperative storytelling, I dig it. Can you walk me through a bit of the process of creating the mechanics for game? Because it's a bit different from just it's a bit different from solely writing a story to be adapted into a game. It's a bit different from coming up with the idea for a game. Like, actual real-play mechanics require, I feel, quite a bit of work. Can you walk me through some of that? Oh, yeah. It's
1: (laughs) kind of terror the first time I did it. Um, Well, my game Squad Goals, which I made for another game jam, several actually, is a Powered by the Apocalypse hack that I added a couple things to, like health a little bit, but that was the first game where I realized, oh, I have to explain how this game works, and I'm telling you what the mechanics are, what you can do, and how you can play, and I get to make your character sheets and tell you what you can do, and it was so liberating and also terrifying to have all of that available to me. And I think part of it is kind of coming down from that high and also the panic that comes with it. And then testing some things out, talking it out, playing it through, seeing what works, seeing what doesn't, because sometimes you might have some really ridiculous ideas, but the ridiculous ideas are where the good comes from, if you know what I mean. Like. You don't throw away an idea just because it's ridiculous, because it might be brilliant. You just haven't figured out
0: how to make it work yet. Yeah, absolutely. So you can whittle down kind of a ridiculous idea from you have this uh, grandiose theme or thing that you might want to do. And you just go, well, how do I do this? And how do I make this work? And you just kind of look at it from different angles until it comes together. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes. Yes.
1: And I think game jams are a really—they're a fun way to do that, and they force you to think and they force you to stretch creatively quickly. Uh, The other thing I like about that is they usually give you page limits. So with Squad Goals, which is a mythology-based superhero game, I really wanted to go into the world building of that. And when I was writing it, my first thought was, oh. This is going to be a 100 page book, but the game jam limit was 20 pages, including, you know, a title page and character sheets. So I had to get my 100 page dream book down to like 12 pages because there's six playable characters. So working in those parameters uh, forces you to pare down into what is actually essential for the gameplay. And then if you want to add that stuff later when you have time, you can always go back and do that. But um, forcing yourself to look at what is essential for the mechanics of this game, how can someone jump in and immediately learn, and what would scare someone off, I think, is important.
0: So for the uninitiated, for those who might not know, can you explain a bit about what you mean by game jam? Sure. Sure. They started in video
1: gaming, uh, but a lot of roleplay or um, tabletop, I, I assume board game uh, creators do them too. It basically, I think with video gamers, you have like three days, but uh, the ones I enter seem to be longer. You sign up online and basically you're given a topic. So the one for necromancy was uh, Dream Jam. So you're given, I think, two weeks. Sometimes it's one month. And it's create a game that fits these parameters. Um, so that one was aligned to the principles of Sword Dream. It has to follow the nine principles. I made squad goals for the World Mythology Jam and the World Folklore Jam. Because it involved both. Uh, Those were both, I think, two-week jams. But basically, you can research all you want beforehand and compile your thoughts, but you can't start creating the game until that time period. And then you work, 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 work during that time period. You do all of your creation, and then you put it up on the website with your fellow creators, and then they're available either for free or for a small fee or I guess if you want a big fee, but a lot of times something you make in you know two weeks isn't gonna be worth the big fee unless you go back and work on it later. Uh and then anyone who is interested in that topic can go see a bunch of games that fit into that topic that kind of stretch the idea of what a game is, uh see a bunch of game creators kind of flexing their thought muscles and um, have access to all of those games.
0: When did you start writing for games? When did you discover that was something you wanted to do?
1: My first one was Uncaged, actually. I've always loved mythology and I've been GMing for the last couple of years. But um, like I said, I'd had a pretty nasty first tabletop experience that scared me away from role-playing for a while. Uh, when I got back into it, of course, I jumped in the first. Uh, and one of my friends found the call for submissions for Uncaged. And I was so excited, and I was also so afraid that I wouldn't get in that I sent in two submissions, which is how I'm <laughs> into volumes, because fortunately Ashley likes the both, but it was really just because of my fear, not because of my amazingness. And then I had so much fun doing it, and I loved the community, and um, the response was so overwhelmingly positive to what we were doing that I kind of just took the torch and ran and have been creating games and game supplements and fun. So not very long, but I've been doing a lot in that short period of time.
0: So tell me a little bit more about your experience with the community. Now that your name is out there, now that you've been creating all this content and I imagine interacting more with this community, what has been your experience, good and bad with it? I was expecting a pretty
1: negative response to uncage, honestly, because I remember a few years ago when there was, I'm not gonna say what it's called, but the call for ethics and the harassment that I got a very small taste of, but that women, men and non-binary people, far more famous than I did, uh, were doxxed and harassed just for saying, hey, you know, we should treat video games as art, and we should treat women and queer people as people in our video games. And I remember the massive pushback, and now Comic is happening, and I've seen the pushback there. So I just had this vision of that happening with Uncaged. And I was so afraid the day that it came out that we were all going to be doxxed. Then there were a few people. I mean, I'm sure if you go to some Reddit threads, there's a couple of people who hate us. There's a few negative voices. But for the most part, it was just overwhelming. The response of people saying, like, yes, this has been what I've been waiting to see. This is something I can finally identify with. I've been contacted by people saying, I've always been too afraid to run a game, but I finally feel seen, or I've always wanted to play an RPG, but I felt like there wasn't anything that represented me. And now I feel confident enough to not only play, but DM something. And it's overwhelming and beautiful. That has been so positive. Just the outpouring of wonderful feedback from such a large group of voices has far overpowered the small gatekeeping groups that really don't want female-presenting people and queer people and Black uh, and Indigenous people of color in their gaming space and I'm so
0: grateful. Yeah, I think that it can be so easy to see some of the negative aspects of an online community and see some of the things like, quote unquote, ethics in journalism, uh, and journalism and, and see that. And think, oh God, that's a space I don't want to enter, and a space I don't want to be in, and a space that's not welcoming for me. But I think, like we mentioned earlier, I think that is changing. And to see the response to something uh, that is so like heavily—I um, don't want to say—I don't want to say that it's divergent because I don't think that those topics are divergent. But I think it's just so like it's something that's. Uh, different from what the the norm usually has been, especially regarding uh, feminine presenting uh, myths and and folklore. I think that to see the reception of that be so positive is just something that is quite uplifting for a number of people because you think that oh this was received really well. Maybe my thing can be received well. Like maybe I have room and I have space to be in this community.
1: Exactly. Some of the responses that literally brought me to tears were the ones that said, you know, this is encouraging me to write my own adventure. This is encouraging me to start my own game. This is encouraging me to finish a book that I never felt was good enough. You know, from um, not just from women and femme-presenting people, but from everyone who was just responding under the Uncaged technology hashtag, like this book is inspiring me to
0: create, basically. Yes, absolutely, um, and and ultimately, I think what we're talking about is all because we are all fans of this one thing, which is uh, experiencing an adventure, experiencing stories, storytelling, community. That's all kind of coming from this base thing, which is D anD. d Essentially. And I think that that it's so wonderful to experience fandom in this positive way. What I'm curious about from you, Jessica, is some of your early pieces of media that you were a fan of or games that you were a fan of, things that in your childhood and teen years you felt a connection with, that you resonated with. What are some of those things for you?
1: Ooh, definitely the last unicorn that popped into my head when I was a little girl I, we couldn't find a VHS copy of it, so I think we rented it just over and over and over and over again because I had to watch it every day. <laughs> um, I think my mom tried to buy it from our local video store and they knew that they could get more money from us, just having us rent it constantly. I loved that. And gosh, I love musicals. So, that kind of high fantasy thing, and um, obviously Disney, I feel like a lot of people would probably say Disney.
0: Oh yeah, definitely Disney.
1: (laughs) I love me some fluffy animals and some pretty dresses. The first book I ever read on my own was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I loved it so much. I remember thinking that nothing was going to be that. So I just read it over and over again. (laughs) And finally my grandma was like, there are other books dear," And she handed me a Nancy Drew book. And I was like, wow, there are other books. This is great too. (laughs) And that kind of set me off on reading. And then I was so disappointed when I read The Hobbit because it didn't have a female lead.
0: Oh. oh! Uh, (laughs) What is it about the things like The Last Unicorn and The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe? What do you think the elements of those stories were that resonated with you?
1: For The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, it was definitely the sense that you could basically just go into your closet and find another world there that anywhere could be a transportation tool. Like the mundane could become magical it was so appealing to me. And I remember every time we would go into an old house because I grew up in Chicago, there's a lot of older buildings there, uh, that were built right after the fire. And um, every time I go to a new friend's house that was older architecture, I would, like, run in their closet when I was little just to check and see if it went to Narnia. I was a really weird kid. Uh, And uh, with the last unicorn, it was kind of like a love and terror. I loved the art. I had nightmares about the Red Bull. But I think. That's kind of our draw towards monsters, right? Like, we're drawn to them, and yet we fear them at the same time. So there were parts of it that I couldn't watch. Like, I couldn't watch the harpy. I was so afraid of her. But I always wanted, like, I couldn't look away at the same time. And the art of the unicorn herself is so beautiful. And you see the animals in the forest in her eyes. And it brings up so many emotions, and there's so much depth. And just that one shot, like, you see her home when you look in her eyes and how powerful that is. And yet, then there's the Red Bull, who's so scary, you can't even look at the screen because, you know, you're four years old.
0: <laughs> what are some of the things that you would consider yourself a fan of these days?
1: she which is funny because she the 80s one, was one of my favorite shows did, and so I guess the more things change, the more they stay the same um, I just started watching Black Mirror I don't know if I'd call myself a fan but I will say it's kind of like that horror thing I described in that I keep watching it even though I'm uncomfortable I'm about to start season three and I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it but I would say that I am still watching it and not looking away. I like Stranger Things. I um, I like the books of Game of Thrones. One of my favorite shows that hasn't been on for a while, and I'm sad they canceled it is Galavant, which I loved. If you haven't seen it, it's a a fantasy musical. It's basically like a comedy Robin Hood type thing where everybody sings and it made me so happy. I love it. It's on Netflix. Um, and of course, good omens. And I haven't seen this season yet of American gods, but I loved the first
0: season. So I'm going to share with you that even though I think American gods is, it, it's one of my favorite books, if not my favorite book, but I have been so afraid to watch the TV show because I'm just like, I don't know if I want something that I do care about and cherish so deeply to like if i'm disappointed in the show have you ever felt that way you're like afraid to consume media of something because you just enjoy your experience of it so much i felt
1: like that with the wonder woman movie actually because i i ended up seeing it and loving it but i have been a wonder woman fan since i was a little girl and i wasn't i'm not old enough that linda carter was on tv like in new episodes, but I would watch the reruns and, like, spin around and pretend I was changing into my Wonder Woman clothes, and I have read the comics, and I was so afraid that they were going to screw it up, because I had seen the Superman movie,
0: and I did not want that for my girl. It ended up being really good. It was really good. That must have been such a relief.
1: It was. And Captain Marvel, too, was similar, not to the same level, because like, I've, I've read Captain Marvel. I've loved Captain Marvel, but just for the last like six years, not for the last like 30 years, <laughs> you know. So those were two that I was really afraid of and they, they both nailed it.
0: What is it about Wonder Woman that you think caused you to be such a fan of her? Like, what about her has resonated with you and continues to uh, as an adult?
1: It would sound really cheesy to say her heart, but it kind of is that. I love that she loves humanity so much, and it's not just a romantic love. Sometimes I feel like someone who's that powerful— Could see humans as, you know, pets or something. But she has this overwhelming love for humankind. And unlike other superheroes, she will, because she's raised in Amazon, she will go to more violent extremes to defend what she loves. And in that way, it seems very maternal. In her affection, like kind of like a grizzly bear, uh, defending her cubs almost. I am really getting into a lot of mixed metaphors here. (laughs) Um, I love that she's a fighter and on a more like silly vein level, like her hair in the Perez comic era looks exactly like mine did, except my hair isn't black. But as a kid, I was like, we yeah, have the same hair. And she's tall, but she's muscular most of the time. Sometimes she's really skinny. But you know, she's tall and she's a badass. And also, she doesn't have to have like a tragic backstory. Like she wasn't sexually abused to become a badass. She isn't like writing some wrong that happened to her or her family or healing some massive wound. Um, Sometimes she is, according to the writer, when they mess with her like that. But most of the time, it's just coming from this place of love and wanting to protect something that she loves.
0: You made a lot of really good points there. And I think something that I want to address is that you keep talking about her strength and her love uh, for humanity. And I think that that's something that really makes her unique because... Oftentimes, you see love being shown as like weakness, affection, and often more uh, what I would label as stereotypically considered to be feminine traits, although we all know that that's not what does that even mean? But what is usually considered to be a more feminine trait, like being empathetic and being loving and being caring and being mothering and things like that that are usually looked at as weaknesses and things that are bad usually if you're considered uh, to be an action hero you're someone who's like hardened and has like a dark backstory and you know you're very stoic and to have Wonder Woman who's someone who exhibits all of these wonderful traits and it's a good thing and it's celebrated and it makes her stronger and it makes her more of a badass like that is so cool. And of course people are going to relate to that.
1: Yeah. And actually you bring up a point where I was thinking about, um, in the most recent universally loved game of friends series finale, they bring up, you know, love is the death of duty and duty is the death of love, whatever. But for her, like she's able to do what she needs to do because of her love. And, she leaves Samuskira, Paradise Island, whatever you want to call it. Sorry, I could talk about Wonder Woman forever. Um, Because, like, not because of some pain, but because, like, she genuinely cares about humans. And she wants to go protect humanity. And she knows that she's the one who's best equipped to do it. And it's just really cool.
0: A common thread within this podcast is finding yourself through the media that you consume or through your community or through your fandom. Is like finding elements of yourself that maybe you used to dislike and finding that oh these things are actually okay and oh i can actually embrace myself and oh these things aren't bad and they don't make me a bad person and i can actually enjoy being loving and friendly and kind and and it's not a weakness and it's not a bad thing have you been able to experience that through your experience in the D community or in the media that you've seen reflected like through Wonder Woman, are there any traits of yourselves that you've been able to embrace through this nerdy community?
1: So this is interesting because I was talking recently with some of my friends in the D&D uh, community about how frequently queer people relate to monsters. And it's often because we don't see ourselves reflected in romances or we don't see people who look like us or love like us in you know, your typical story so we identify with the outcast and um, how common that is but it doesn't feel common when you're young and you're the one who's like oh I kind of identify with, like, that weird little monster that everybody wants to kill. Uh, And so it's been cool now having this community and realizing that, first of all, there's a bunch of us who identify as the outcast creatures, but also being able to take aspects of that and make them into heroes, right? So um, I guess I'll use modern... Shira as an example. Like everyone in that show is gay. They're all queer. And it's basically canon. The show's creator said, unless they're explicitly said to be hetero, you can assume that they are queer. And it's very cool because that's something that normally you would have to look to a monster or a villain to identify with and instead it's a whole team of princesses that you can identify with instead
0: I think that that certainly rings true with with Shira especially I think that it will make me feel a little bit better because I am so in love with Scorpia. I just every time <laughs> every time I watch I'm just like that's my wife I love her so much <laughs>
1: So I'm, like, um, just under 5'11", so I always identify extra hard with any, like, massive woman on the screen. So every time she's there, I'm
0: like, that's me. I'm Scorpia. That's so funny. Um, (laughs) I'm 4'11", and so I'm always like, oh, she's so big, she can lift me. I love her. (laughs) Please carry me, my queen. Oh, God. (laughs) But I think more to your point, I think that, yes, villains for a long time were, like, had a lot of queer coded traits, like, especially, like, male villains would be exhibiting a lot of traits that you'd see, like, in in gay culture, like, very feminine, and it would be so bad to be feminine. Oh, how, how dare he be feminine? That is evil and bad. And it's like, no, those things are not evil or bad for anyone. And, and I think... Uh, I actually recorded uh, one of the episodes that's out with was well, the Sarah Zedig uh, we talk a bit about how werewolves especially I think can be relatable for like trans folks because when you think about like becoming other or feeling other and you know some of the transformation that happens with werewolves I think it can be like easy to to see yourself in that and then to see that be vilified is kind of difficult and so it's nice to see now in modern media, you see less of that and you see more of it becoming things that are good and becoming things that are more open. And I'm so happy that that's happening and happy that that resonates with you and your media. Yeah,
1: I, I think we're living in a very cool time for representation. Sorry, that was a really straight way of putting it, but it is a very cool time in terms of representation. We don't have everything yet, but even in terms of like, if you look at the Dragon Prince on Netflix, there's a lot of cool diversity and representations there. Like there's a deaf captain of the guards and um, the king is black and uh, his one of his sons is biracial. And it's just, there's a lot of neat going
0: on. And it can be so nice to see those things because in other aspects of just general existence, it can be real rough. You know, when we look at our politics and we look at a lot of the stuff that's happening there, that can be really difficult to deal with. And so to be able to like in your free time consume something that doesn't make you feel bad, you know, that can be such a relief. Yeah. <laughs> um so we are reaching the end of our interview time and i want to ask you kind of a a silly question okay so i love silly questions perfect awesome i'm glad (laughs) if you could turn any piece of media into a D &D setting what would you choose oh this is a hard question because
1: not everything would work in a D D setting my first thought was like Westworld or something, but I think that would be better in a different setting that's more suited to sci-fi. So, okay. I mean, Game of Thrones is probably a pretty easy answer because there's a lot of houses and it's already so fantasy. There's dragons and politics. That would work. That would be pretty fun.
0: That would be really fun. I think navigating like it can be fun. It can also be like very meta gamey. It can be very like a slow drag for some people, but it can be very interesting to navigate politics in a game where it's not so dire, like in real life.
1: Yeah, I know what I would want to do actually. And there's a big bad, and it would work well into Mistborn. Actually, that could be really fun. It would be totally different magic system. But Brandon Sanderson's Mistborn would be very cool B. Can you
0: go into that a little bit? Because I'm not familiar.
1: Yes, I feel bad because it actually has its own board game. I don't know if it has an RPG. If it does, sorry, Mistborn RPG, I haven't played you. Um, <laughs> it is an alternate world where there are certain people who can, how they use magic is basically by burning or utilizing certain metals. So like if you burn one kind of metal, you can have superhuman strength. If you burn another kind of metal, you can influence people. And another kind lets you overhear people. And another sort of metal lets you jump really high. And usually people can just do one thing. So you might be like a soothsayer or something, a soother is what they call the people who influence others. A smoker is somebody who uses the metal to hide your location so that people can't see you. Uh, And they are select group of people who can burn all of the metals. And one of them is trying to rally the oppressed proletariat, I suppose, to fight against the evil overlord and his dark Clerics and basically overthrow the ruling class and show them that you don't have to be noble to be able to burn metals and that anybody can do it. It's not necessarily, well, not anybody can do it, but it's not tied to blood. And it's pretty cool what happens. And the lead is a young girl who
0: is pretty neato. <laughs> Pretty neato is definitely how I want to be described. That's a good one. <laughs> um, I, that does sound like a really fun, a really fun storyline to play through and to to be able to kind of take it on as your own story would be really enjoyable. Yeah. As you were talking about that, I was thinking a bit about, um, I know you said you're a Disney fan, so you've probably seen like the the older Winnie the Pooh movie. And, yeah. and when they, they have this moment in the, in the movie where it, they kind of read it, like when they start off the different stories, essentially, like they start with the text that's in the book. And at one point they're kind of like interacting with the text in the book and they're like climbing on it. Like it's a ladder. And when there's like a windy I scene, that. I think it would be really cool to like play through a story where the characters slowly, like over time through the adventure, realize that they're in a book. That they're, like, part of a story as the campaign goes on? That would be so cool. I love that. Oh, man. Yeah, I just, I had that thought as you were talking. I was like, yeah, being able to, like, interact with it uh, would be really cool. So, I don't know, guys. Maybe next, uh, maybe next Game Jam That's something you'll have to come up with. All right, listeners, get on it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I want to play that game. Somebody make it.
0: Yes. Uh, All right, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on. Is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything that you have going on that you would like to tell the listeners about? Oh, my gosh. So many things. I'm
1: going to be, if you're at Gen Con, I'm moderating the panel on Uncaged. I think we still have a few tickets. So get your tickets for that. Come meet me and um, a couple of the other folks. Who are going to be talking? Uh, Ashley Warren, Samantha Darcy, Kat Krueger, and Luciela Scarlett are on the panel. And also, coming out soon is Friends, Foes, and Other Fine Folk is coming to DM's Guild. That's a collection of diverse NPCs, as well as Beyond the Basics, which is a bunch of short adventures for the standard rules. So, like, For all of the monsters in the standard rules, it's just short encounters that you can play that kind of flip them around and you can do something cool with them. As well as Berthizar's House of Familiars, which is not available. None of these are available yet, but they will be available very soon.
0: (laughs) okay so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna put all of her stuff um in the show notes but i'll also link it in the twitter post when this episode comes out so please be sure to check them out i know that i personally am going to be playing through necomancy because i love tarot and i love cats so that's gonna be so fun so please go take a look at her stuff go follow her on twitter which i will also post and thank you jessica for coming on until the next one we'll see ya That was my interview with Jessica Markrum. I really enjoyed talking to her. It was so fun to get into the current state of D&D and talking about writing for games and figuring out the mechanics for making your own game and just kind of getting into the nitty-gritty of game design and game writing with her. As much fun as I had recording it, I hope you had as much fun listening to it. And if you did enjoy listening to it, do me a favor and run on over to iTunes and leave me a five-star review. It really helps me out. If you would like to pose a question to our guests. Please feel free to submit questions to our email at generalchatpodcast@gmail.com. At and if you'd like to give us a follow, we're at General Chat Pod on Twitter. That's it until the next one. See ya.